Dramatised events. Characters and letters in this series were inspired by true stories from known historical facts and archive. A story of Irish whisky. How three families saved it from extinction. Cork distilleries had expanded so successfully that in the 1800s they installed the world's largest pot still at Middleton Distillery, which remains the world's largest pot still today. They'd expanded so much in the 19th century that Cork was a boom town for Irish whiskey. Ultimately, five of these Cork distilleries amalgamated under one body known as the Cork Distilleries Company. Run by Norbert Murphy, he understood how powerful and necessary a merger could be. But still, Jameson and Power's intentions were looked upon with suspicion. The Dublin distillers had styled themselves as almost superior to what they call their country cousins, to the Cork distillers. So much so that they actually even changed the way that they spelt whiskey. They spelt it with an E, which is now the, the most common way for Irish whiskey. But they put in the E to distinguish themselves from what they called country whiskey, which was Cork whiskey. Now down in Cork, this didn't go down very well. They stuck to the traditional spelling, but they felt the slight. They felt that Dublin was looking down on them. Three groups of people deeply suspicious of each other at a certain level. I mean, the Cork Distilleries Company was very, very suspicious of the motives of both Powers and Jemison. And no one was more suspicious than Norbert Murphy. Turin House, 1966. The meeting of the Irish whiskey families. Frank, we are friends. And I appreciate all the hard work and time you gave me in the months and weeks before this meeting to persuade me to be here. But my perspective is different, that's all. Mr Norbert, what do you mean exactly? I mean you boys can talk about the First and Second World Wars. Prohibition, the economic trade war with Britain, and the final nail. The absolutely incomprehensible export policy of the government in the 1950s that actually put a cap on exports. And it's only when you've experienced this firsthand, when you've tasted it, smelled it, do you fully understand. Oh, Mr Norbert, with respect, we do understand. Maybe not on your... With respect. I've seen the flashy cars you all drive, which clearly shows me you do not understand. <laughs> He battled, literally battled, to keep distilling alive in Cork and to keep the company floating through all of those external events that he had absolutely no control over. And he was somebody, he was highly revered in the Irish distilling world. He, he was quite a, an aloof, almost a taciturn sort of man, but he was acknowledged as an expert. He knew distilling inside out. This is what he had dedicated his life, and he really did dedicate his life to this. As a young man, he was quite energetic, quite dynamic. He was open to new ideas. Uh, he was, in fact, in charge when cork dry gin was invented in 1941. Carol Quinn, archivist, Irish distillers. Because whiskey sales had slumped, and they're looking for another income stream. So he produced the first commercially produced Irish gin, cork dry gin. Uh, he, he was quite innovative, but he, he had very high standards, extremely high standards. And in his own personal life, he was quite frugal. 
And it, it was always said that the sales reps of the Cork Distilleries Company drove better cars than the owner of the company, which was Mr. Norbert. He drove a Ford Prefect, which, if anybody doesn't know, is quite a small, modest car. And in fact, he never learned to drive himself, so he had a chauffeur. And you have to imagine they're in this tiny car together being driven from uh, Cork City out to Middleton Distillery and back again. He didn't see any point in changing until it came to the point that the chauffeur went to him and he said, literally, Mr. Norbert, you know, the floor of the car is gone. It's rusty. Excuse me, Mr. Norbert, uh, may I have a quick word as we drive? You may. It's about the car. Uh, You see, well... Um. Drive slowly, man. The faster you go, the more gasoline you use. Now, what were you saying? Uh, Mr. Norbert, uh, unfortunately, the car's very, very old, and parts of it have rusted, including the floor of the car, and the rust has caused holes, large holes. My, my foot actually touches against the road, and the whole floor's about to fall out. So what are you saying? I'm saying that the car needs to be replaced. Just because the floor is bad? Yes, Mr. Norbert. And what of the engine of the car? How's that? It's also old, Mr. Norbert. But is it in good working order? I mean, it is working. We are, as we speak, in motion, getting from Cork City to Middleton by the power of that engine that needs to be replaced. It's in working condition, Mr. Norbert, but it... Then the solution doesn't appear to be a new car, but a new floor. Leave it with me. I'll have someone look after it. So he got the carpenter in the watercourse distillery to build a wooden floor for his car and continue to drive on it. He became quite pernickety about a couple of things and economy because, again, he'd lived through the First and Second World Wars. He hated waste. He absolutely hated waste. And one of the things he saw as very, very wasteful was electric light. So when he would make his quite routine surprise inspections to Middleton Distillery, a man would have to go around Mr. Norbert's route, turning off all the lights before him, and another guy would be coming behind him, turning the lights back on so people could do their work. But uh, So he, he was this kind of stern, patrician figure, but he was a colossus in Irish distilling, and he would have taken very seriously um, his commitment to his employees. You know, uh, we kind of laugh at him not spending money on a new car or turning off the electric lights, but he's trying to save his business. And he would have felt a huge responsibility to the families of employees. He was doing everything he could to keep Irish whiskey afloat in a very, very, very bad time. Barry Crockett, master distiller emeritus, was himself interviewed by Norbert Murphy, and he remembers him. Many of the the dealings that I've heard that people had with him, he had a very kind streak. And say, so for example, if a person was unwell or sick or whatever, he would always be to the fore in helping that person out. Let's just take it back to the fact that we have different perspectives and that is our strength, not our weakness. And if Jemison's strength is their humanity, fearlessness and innovation, 
and from what I know about cork distilleries, their strengths are tenacity, excellent investments, because, Mr Norbert, you have invested in some of the most up-to-date technologies in your distillery, and you have innovated with the introduction of cork-dry gin. And if I was to add one more strength, it would be your directness and the high standard which you set for yourself and others. I won't be soft-soaped. We live in a time when no one says what they mean. Everyone talks in circles. Your directness and honesty is refreshing. Thank you. But I don't know any other way to be but direct. Norbert Murphy was initially reluctant to take part in these crisis talks. But Frank O'Reilly of Powers had many private meetings and telephone conversations with Norbert in advance of the Turin House meeting. Well, it's funny, you know, when the negotiations would have started, you would think, is there somebody with an upper hand? Is there somebody who is slightly more senior? I would think that Mr. Norbert Murphy <laughs> might have seen himself. Um, but at the time, you've got to remember that Powers was actually the, the best selling Irish whiskey. So who was the more senior? I don't know. Um, but I'd say there was an awful lot of diplomacy involved. Norbert respected Frank O'Reilly, who inherited not just the business from his family, but the power's attitude and insistence on perfection. This was something Norbert could identify with. Powers would have been the best-selling whiskey in Ireland because it had the best reputation in Ireland. Michael Carr, global brand ambassador of Powers Irish Whiskey, explains. So if you think of... You know, back in the middle of the uh, 19th century, Irish whiskey was the best-selling style of whiskey in the world, probably the best-selling style of spirit in the world, apart from gin. Powers, going back to the very start, they always had, uh, James Power always had um, an attitude of perfection. Even when he owned his own uh, bar, his tavern, just outside the gates of Dublin, he wanted it to be the best in Dublin. Um, and so he sourced, tried to source the best whiskies in Dublin. Um, and within a few years, he realized that the whiskies he was sourcing weren't up to the standard he wanted. So he started making his own whiskey. That was 1791. And um, all through the lifetime of Powers, um, right to the present day, it, it's it been like that. They've Even if you look at the distillery and look at the attention to detail, say you take the grain stores in the old distillery, uh, instead of being you know, just stone walls and stone floors. You have uh, beveled tile walls. You have oak panel ceilings. You have uh, tiled floors in a grain store. There's no point. There's no need. You don't have to have these. But people were in there. They were working. Not customers, not punters, the staff. And they felt that if they created this environment for their staff to work in, their staff would do their best work and give their best whiskey. Powers were considered to be the preeminent distillers. And it's just the way they took ownership of the whole process of distillation. You know, they designed their stills in-house. They designed their own spirit safe, which that's where the distiller makes these decisions on the quality of the spirit coming off the stills. They really took ownership of the engineering side of things in a way that I, I certainly haven't seen through the records of the other distilleries. And it was reflected in the fact that they were the number one selling Irish whiskey in Ireland.
And Frank, what about powers? We've hardly discussed your family business. You all mostly know our story, our challenges and ways of doing things. One of the first things that struck me when I visited your distillery was your approach. I'd never seen anything like it in all my years. I'd like to see your operation. Nothing would give me greater pleasure. Should we have a small taste of powers? Yes. Yes, please. There's that balance between the pot still spice that comes through and there's a lovely gentle sweetness as well. It's got all of those flavours that we love in Ireland. It's very Irish. There's no mistaking its origin and that's a good thing. From a product that was considered you know, one of the world's greatest drinks and was sold in the 1880s, 1890s all over the world, you've it shrunk back down to the domestic market and they are struggling. Now, they're still all family-owned. Um, they've shrunk, not in size because the buildings can't shrink, but in terms of their output, in terms of how many people they can employ and also in terms of, of what they can buy from the farmers around. So, so there's a lot, there's a whole community struggling here. The meetings at Turin House took place over a period of a year. In the end, it was decided that they would move forward as one company. So Irish Distillers was formed in 1966, when a merger took place between John Power & Son, John Jameson & Son and Cork Distilleries Company. Norbert Murphy was appointed the first president of Irish Distillers in recognition of his contribution to Irish whisky. Frank O'Reilly was appointed chairman, Alec Crichton and Shane Jameson were directors. was announced there was absolute stunned kind of silence from business world they were so shocked Frank O'Reilly's daughter Olivia remembers the news being announced because Powers was quoted on the stock exchange so it was really important that it didn't get out um, and then when when it did people were absolutely stunned because they couldn't believe it and I remember um, I think Mr Murphy in Cork um, he was the most senior of them all and I think he was like he probably, understandably, uh, took a bit more persuasion. But I think um, in the end, you know, it, it really did work and they all got on well. That was the nice thing. There was, you know, a balance to it all. But this merger brought with it huge change and risk. Now, the two Dublin distilleries, they'd originally been built in what were greenfield sites uh, outside the city of Dublin. But as the years went by, as the decades went by, they were swallowed up by the city. And although the premises worked perfectly well, it was the transport, the access in and out. The streets were too narrow. You couldn't have modern day tankers. They weren't built for lorries. They were built for horse and carts. And they were no longer fit for purpose. Move on, move on. You can't park there. It's a delivery. I don't have anywhere else to park. You're blocking traffic. Move. Now! Down in Cork at Middleton, we were very lucky that Old Middleton Distillery was built adjacent to agricultural land. It was a greenfield site. So when Irish Distillers was formed, 
one of the early acts um, was to rationalize production and to centralize production. So in 1975, Europe's most modern distilling facility was built next to Old Middleton. And this was Irish distillers' flag going up saying, we believe in the future. We believe in what we're doing and we're going to put everything we have into this. Kristen Jameson, who was then 19, remembers her father, Shane Jameson, announcing to her the amalgamation of the three distilleries and explaining the move to Middleton. The minute that it had been decided, uh, we were told, and I realised what what a huge undertaking uh, they'd agreed to. I'm the second largest distillery in the world for a small country, for a small company, was uh, an enormous amount of capital to pay out. Of course, my first question was, uh, how can you make different whiskies and even gin at the same distillery? And he said, well, do you make always the same soup in the same saucepan? And uh, I, I accepted it from there on. The new distillery was the most modern in Europe. Everything had worked out well, and all of those involved were happy, at least at first. However, as the years moved on, and vast amounts of money, time and energy was invested to ensure Irish whisky could reclaim its rightful place on the world stage, something became apparent. They realised if they were to ever get back to where they had been, they needed to put all the effort behind one brand. We only get one chance to get this right. We need to decide which one of our whiskies has the most potential to make it on the international market and then pool all our resources, marketing and effort behind that brand. If we make the wrong decision, then we jeopardise everything we've been working towards. Frank, I know Powers is the number one selling whisky in Ireland, but Jemison is already becoming quite popular on the continent. Shane, I think you're forgetting Powers was also the number one selling spirit in the world as well. But I agree with Norbert, we need to think about this carefully. Kristen Jameson, Shane Jameson's daughter, echoes her father's thinking. Just about that time I was um, studying in Italy, I used to be asked when I went out, would I like an Irish scotch? Which wasn't exactly what I expected. Didn't understand what that was to begin with. But uh, they gave me a glass of Jemison. And uh, I realised that Irish scotch or Jemison whisky was actually becoming uh, much more popular and Definitely the smart drink to drink in, uh, in Florence. After many discussions, the families reached an agreement on which whiskey they'd go with. The whiskey they believed would be the most likely to get people into the category. And once they were introduced, they could explore the rich single pot still that is the quintessential Irish whiskey style. 
they agreed they would go with Jameson. But what did that mean for the other brands? And why did the families involved agree this was the best way forward? On the final episode of A Story of Irish Whiskey, how three families saved Irish whiskey from extinction. Hostile bids, takeovers, and finally, renaissance. As Irish whiskey is rediscovered around the world. A Story of Irish Whiskey is produced by LastCastMedia.com for Irish Distillers. With special thanks to our interviewees for their contributions to the series, in particular those at the Middleton and Bow Street Distilleries. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. And for more information on Irish Whiskey, go to irishdistillers.ie.